0: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: The U.S. immigration system is complex, confusing, and causes no shortage of stress for those that have to go through it. And that was the case before the Russian invasion of Ukraine sent millions of refugees fleeing to all parts of the world the United States has since instituted the Uniting for Ukraine initiative, which streamlines the existing humanitarian parole system so that Ukrainian refugees can stay in the country without a visa for up to two years. The program is a temporary fix, which begs the question as to what happens if the war in Ukraine lasts longer than a couple of years. It also underscores how our immigration system treats refugees from one conflict zone differently from others and speaks to a lack of uniformity in the rules in general. On the other hand, immigration law is an area that lends itself well to technological innovations. The form-heavy and time-sensitive nature of our system means that technology can help lawyers practice more effectively and efficiently. It is in that intersection where immigration lawyer Greg Siskin does his work. Greg is a founding partner at the immigration law firm Siskin Susser. He's also the co-founder of VisaLaw.ai, a software automation company that builds tools for immigration lawyers to use in their practice so that they can be more effective and more efficient. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal, and joining me on today's episode of ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast is Greg Siskin. Welcome to the show,
2: Greg. Thanks. Nice to be here, Victor.
1: So I've given the quick 10-cent version of your bio. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and your background in immigration law?
2: Sure. So I have been uh, I've been practicing law since 1990, uh, and I didn't go into... Um, my practice thinking i was going to be an immigration lawyer in fact in law school they didn't even teach immigration law at the school i went to i went back to nashville where i went to college thinking i was going to be a lawyer for two or three years and then probably go back to grad school and do something uh, else I, I really during law school uh well I, I thought it was interesting and all that i just was not seeing anything there that was uh, uh that appealing to me um and i ended up uh joining a large firm in Nashville and going into their corporate law department, um, thinking that I would uh, I'd be able to pay back some student loans and then start the process of figuring out what kind of graduate degree I wanted to get next. But once I got to this firm, I uh, was lucky enough that an immigration matter uh, dropped on my desk and this large firm didn't have an immigration practice and uh, I was left to uh, figure figure it out and really found it appealing. So that's one of the ways that I ended up in, in in that area the the other part of it it was that I had a I grew up in Miami uh, and I had a uh, there were immigrants in my family there were immigrants all in my neighborhood and my father was in a business that uh, allowed us to uh, go with travel travel around the world with him for his work. so I had some exposure early on to Immigrants. Uh, I didn't really sort of put two and two together that it would be a good area to practice law in until uh, that first matter came. But that's uh, that's how I ended up um, doing immigration law, and I'm happy that I did. the uh, The other thing that was at the time I was starting in Nashville in 1990. I mean, people think of Nashville now as a sort of a large city and a uh, you know fairly cosmopolitan. Uh, at the time, it was not seen that way, and uh, I. Originally, was told that immigration law would be a really tough practice to make a go of it in Nashville, and that was the time that, uh, I fortunately, got interested in the internet and built my practice uh, around that. So that's kind of how the tech, the tech and the internet, the tech and the immigration, um, came, came together back in the early 90s, and that's uh, what got me interested in that uh, immigration law is a federal practice area. Uh, and back then and as is the case now uh, almost everything is filed uh, at regional service centers so uh, it really didn't matter that much necessarily if I had clients in Tennessee I could get clients from anywhere in the country um, using the internet and that's that's how I embarked on the kind of practice that I have in immigration law so I was pretty lucky as far as the timing
1: great so um so you talk you talk about the tech side a little bit so um, can you describe a little bit how does visalaw.ai work like if, if I wanted to use it, like, how would I, how, how would you, how would you explain it to me?
2: So visa law.ai are, they're, they're essentially, it's a series of expert system tools for immigration lawyers. And the way I usually explain it to immigration lawyers is we've, we are looking for the pain points in immigration law practice, the things that are complicated and time consuming that can be automated. Um, so, we have, for example, on a, uh, a complicated work visa category called the H-1B visa, um, we have tools that can automate the document retention process that's associated with that, something that there's very short deadlines. You have a service sort of 24-hour time frame to put something called a public access file together. Uh, that was something that gave people a lot of, uh, a, a lot of problems as far as being able to comply with the law. That's one example. We have actually dozens of apps that we've developed in dealing with different types of cases. Some of them are also eligibility screeners. So uh, we either a, a, a lawyer can answer questions or a client can answer questions. that, And, and the app using sort of a rules-based um, type of AI can determine whether somebody qualifies or not for a particular type of benefit based on the way that they're uh, answering the questions. And now we're building tools that will plug into case management systems and uh, and, and do other. Uh, we have a bot tool that we've created as well that lawyers can use um, to automate the intake process with their clients. But basically, the theme is that they are all tools that are designed to deal with difficulties in the uh, in the typical immigration lawyer's practice to save them uh, to save them time and hopefully get better results than they would manually.
1: So if I'm a lawyer and, you know, I hear about these tools and whatnot, I mean, obviously adoption is always the uh, the tricky part, especially with when it comes to technology. So if I'm a lawyer and I'm reluctant to use these tools because, you know, maybe i don't understand technology or maybe i'm worried that okay well what if there's a bug and something happens and i miss a deadline or a filing because of a mistake in the software or i don't don't want to take that chance that you know i might get i might get in trouble for this like what would you say to a lawyer like that who just kind of like i don't want to use these tools i would just rather just rely on my own on my own brain
2: well for one the tools are being developed uh, by by immigration lawyers so they are people that really know uh the field and we're deploying these tools at sisk and susser the law firm which is essentially the lab for a lot of these tools um one thing that gives us i think a bit of a, a, a some credibility in the area is that we you know there, there there are a number of treatises that are out in immigration law there's a uh, there's one that's called the um, uh, american immigration lawyers association practice and procedures manual which is a 3200 page book that i uh, co-author with one of my partners um, on there and there's a lot of trust already in the market as far as uh the authors of the tools which i think gives people uh more comfort as far as using them knowing that one that they know who wrote they know they know who developed the software and two they know that it's being actually used in this lab this law firm before they are before they're being sent elsewhere so um and then the other thing that i i think is there's some trust because we were really known in immigration law as far as the being the tech leader we were the 1994 we're the first law firm uh, in the country immigration law firm in the country with a website and we've been known over the years as far as uh, as far as developing usually the latest tech before the rest of the bar does so um, that I think gives people some trust as well
1: so on the flip side, if I'm if I'm a immigration lawyer and I want to start my own practice, I mean there's so many tools out there available like intake tools, you know, form automation tools, uh, practice management tools and whatnot. What would you recommend uh, to me if if I wanted to start my own practice? Like what are the tools that I should be using?
2: Well, from a software point of view, I think that there's a couple of core products that every immigration firm should have. One is a uh, they should have a a good Case management system that's customized toward immigration. There's a lot of case management systems that are out there that are great, but immigration law is sort of its own its own animal. Um, and getting an immigration case management system that is either designed just for immigration lawyers or one that can be that's been customized to work well with immigration lawyers, I think that's fairly critical. Two, I would have probably some good automated legal research uh, products that uh, and there there's. There are several that are out there i would obviously have a good office suite uh office 365 or g suite or, or or one of those good accounting software um and good document software document assembly and document management software you know those are some of the basic core products that i would have for immigration as well there's a lot of things now that we need to have a good pdf building software because of the way that we submit things but there's a, uh, you know, there, there are choices that are out there for lawyers in that space. AI is trying to, um, I think, create its own category as far as expert system go, systems go. For a lot of lawyers that, for example, have limited uh, financial ability to hire associates and hire a lot of people to do various kinds of screenings and things like that, um, you know, expert system tools can be helpful for firms that are trying to keep their, you know, maybe trying to um, spend less on, uh, on, on, on building out their team as quickly, um, might be able to use some of these tools to be able to save them some of the labor that they're typically use, And then the people that they do have utilizing them more um, for the types of things that can't be automated as easily.
1: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated
0: with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard.
1: Delegate out those tasks that take up your time.
0: like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple.
1: And we're back. So, Greg, let's talk about immigration in general. So, so much of it, obviously, is political, and trying to get Congress to act on anything these days is a Herculean task. So assuming there's no miraculous bipartisan deal on the on, on the horizon, are we looking at an immigration system that's entirely reliant on who's in the White House?
2: Unfortunately, that's, I think, where we are right now uh, on there. And we've certainly, uh, we, we saw that with the past administration. I think there was sort of a belief that got really, uh, the, the, we really ended up doing away with it a, a number of years ago, thinking that, you, you know, if Congress couldn't, pass anything then the immigration system would stay relatively static maybe broken but not changing all that much and what we found um, in the last administration and to some extent in the Obama administration before that is that presidents can do a lot of things via executive order um, and of course executive orders uh, are you know can be wiped away with the stroke of a pen when the next president comes along so, We've gotten used to in the last several years of these radical swings from administration to administration as far as what to expect. I think one of the things I liked about immigration law when I got into it initially was that there was a lot of change and that it seemed like uh, every president since I came, you know, since since George H. W. Bush was president when I came into this practice area. Um, Thought that they could fix the immigration system. Congress thought that they could fix the immigration system. Everybody's had their ideas for how to do it, um, and that's always led to lots of change. Um, but it's a uh, they, you know, so that's that's good, and you know, that's always been a constant theme. I think one thing that has changed though is that Congress hasn't passed an immigration bill since 2005. I think a pure immigration bill, something that came out of the immigration committees. There have been immigration provisions here or there and usually fairly minor that were included in appropriations bills or those kinds of things. So there's been mod- modest tweaks here and there to the immigration system. So we've seen presidents getting more and more creative, aggressive, depending on what you know, what the uh, what term you want to use um, in the last couple of years as far as things that they are doing. And then the other thing that's also been... We've seen a, an acceleration is uh, and I've, our firm's been involved in a lot of these cases is litigation where a lot of things that have been coming out of various White Houses now are being challenged because as the, these administrations are getting more and more uh, creative/ slash aggressive in terms of using executive orders, there are a lot more questions as far as you know whether they are going too far in terms of what they're doing and whether they're complying with the existing laws. That are already out there so that's that's another thing we're seeing is you know executive orders followed by uh litigation and sometimes you know courts basically completely turning their uh turning whatever that executive order was upside down um and it goes both directions there have been you know policies from uh trump uh that were you know pretty pretty anti-immigrant and then uh uh the uh you know where the, um, the immigration bar might be suing on it, or ACLU or some of the advocacy organizations on were, were suing on those very successfully. And now we see in this new administration, um, some of the conservative groups that are doing the same thing uh, in reverse. So we saw that with President Biden's prosecutorial discretion memo right off the bat that uh, a court uh, suspended that in Texas. And that might happen with the, DAPA, the DACA program uh, right now is under the gun. So that's something as well that we've had to get used to.
1: Yeah, I guess the one thing that I was kind of curious about is, you know, as a lawyer, how do you, you know, I mean, whether you're representing businesses or you're representing individuals who are going through the system, how do you, how do you advise them on, um, you know, just knowing that like something like that could happen, where it's like, okay, one one president might be more friendly, one president might might not be um, you know, depending on like who's challenging, who's challenging certain provisions. I mean, the people in DACA have been, have, have, have definitely been, have definitely undergone sort of a roller coaster the last, few, the last, you know, 10 years or so. So, I mean, what, what, uh, how, how do you as a lawyer kind of prepare your clients for that kind of uncertainty?
2: We can tell them sort of, you know, where we're seeing, uh, for example, if we know litigation has already been filed and, you know, in a few months, we could be seeing that a lot of times, what we're doing as lawyers is advising on not just what the law is, but where we see over the next, you know, six months or a year where things might be going, depending on what suits are out there, what uh, you know, what what the press is reporting on as far as ideas that are being considered. Occasionally, things that might be going through Congress, um, you know, things actually. There are some people who think that Congress might actually move some things this year. Um, hard to say, but that's, uh, it's not easy to advise clients here. And the biggest thing I'll tell them is that you just need to be um, prepared for change and prepared for surprises, much more so than in the past. I think a lot of cases, clients just are upset with their lawyers when they don't feel like they were given warning about, uh, about these surprises um, that might be coming. So that's one of the things I think, you know, in our practice area versus others that you not only have to you know, keep an eye on what's going on, uh, you know, in in general, not just knowing what the law is, but also looking at the entire environment and preparing your clients for what might be coming, sometimes not years down the pike, but maybe weeks down.
1: So, I mean, you had mentioned uh, about Congress and whatnot. I mean, and and just talking generally about the Ukrainian Ukrainian refugees uh, trying to come into the United States and whatnot. Do you think that might have an impact? on whether or not there's a deal in Congress or just in general? Like, what do you think the impact of all these Ukrainian re- r- refugees coming into the country might might uh, you know, might have?
2: Well, I mean, it is interesting how President Biden um, has approached it. So it, it's actually a really novel way that he has, uh, that, that he's bringing them. And there's been a lot of I thought was, you know, sort of pie in the sky discussion about really kind of transforming a lot of things about uh, the refugee system in terms of average people being able to sponsor an immigrant. I have a friend, David Beer at the Cato Institute, who's been pushing for this idea for a a lot of years, this idea that, you know, sponsor a friend uh, to come over. There's somebody in the U.S. that's like sort of willing to vouch for a person. That's probably a pretty good uh, place to start. And I always thought that that was sort of like, well, that's nice, but that's never going to happen. Um, and now this program, this Uniting for Ukraine program, is essentially designed almost in that way, where uh, virtually any individual in the U.S. Um, can sponsor a Ukrainian to come to the United States. They have to fill out something called an affidavit of support, uh, and you know they do basic screenings to make sure the person's not inadmissible, inadmissible for you know criminal issues or, or that kind of thing. But it's a much different way than in the past uh, that uh, that refugees have been admitted to the US so I give a lot of credit to the administration for thinking outside the box with respect to that population The other thing that's really interesting from the technology perspective from my uh, on there that I'm always sort of like thinking from that perspective is this is a program that's being done almost completely electronically whereas the rest of the immigration system you know is still largely a paper-based, filing system done by, uh, you know, just regular mail mailings to service centers. And it is a uh, it, it's something that, um, you know, I think the immigration agencies have have been faulted a lot over the last several years as far as being really backwards when it comes to technology. So uh, now, of course, once these Ukrainians get into the United States, then they have to file a, 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 for a work card, which. Right now, you know, six to eight months is what the average work time it takes for them to adjudicate something that should take 12 minutes. Is according to the uh, the agency, the USCIS, that's how long it takes to adjudicate. It just takes all that time for it to land on somebody's desk because they're so backlogged and 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 really um, decimated. I think from the uh, the Trump years, as far as people leaving the agency and a lot of other things that were essentially done to break it. But that is a so you know, it's an illustration of the the first part of it, the electronic part to get them to the United States, is a good example of where you deploy technology creatively. You can really design something that works quite well, and it is. Um, and then when you default back to the old system, the paper system, it's a disaster again.
1: That kind of piggybacks onto what I wanted to uh, to wrap up with. So, in terms of like modernizing, um, you know, you know the the bureaucracy or the you know, the intake system or, or whatnot. I mean, what are some changes that, like, you know, if you, like, let's say you became, um, let, let's, let's say you became, you you became head of, uh, of DHS or, 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 or USAS tomorrow uh, and you had unlimited budget and you could, you know,
2: <laughs> you're trying to curse me. <laughs> it's the last thing I um, want.
1: But, you know, just, just let's assume for the sake of argument, what are things that you would do to try to modernize the system and make it, make it work better for people?
2: Well, one of the things I've sort of noticed with these agencies is they, they definitely, I think, default to old ways of doing things and assume that the ways that they've always been doing them are the ways that they always have to be doing them. Um, so, for example, this work card that I just mentioned to you, the immigration service takes the position that they have to issue a physical plastic work card you know, with the person's photo on it. It looks very similar to a driver's license that they have to do that for every single person. Whereas you look at the statute and the regulation, all it says is that they have to have a document. A document could be the paper receipt that uh, or even an online receipt could be the document that they can print out. Um, that would instantly take a million people out of the backlog and get them working immediately, which would have really major implications for the country. The problem is that there are entrenched interest at the agency, and I'm not talking about the political appointees, I'm talking about people that have just been there for decades, that are very married to a status quo, uh, that they don't want to change. So that's, that's an example of it. I'd, I think I'd also like to, uh, this is sort of one of my pet causes, is that the service centers that adjudicate most of these applications, um, everything is done in an- anonymity. Uh, you, f- you send this application off, You get a decision on it. You never actually know who's making a decision on it. And I think that that sometimes breeds problems as far as uh, people not having accountability for their decisions when nobody actually knows who made the decision. So, you know, if you marry a U.S. citizen, uh, you'll go to an in-person interview at a local USCIS office. That officer has some accountability because it's in person. You know who you're, you know who the person is that are that's interviewing. But people don't realize that for the vast, vast majority of applications that are filed with the immigration service, it's an anonymous decision. That's something I would change, uh, where you actually had to have the name of the uh, the person and email, and have email an email address and the ability to communicate with that person. But there's a lot of that kind of thing that I would change. It just really needs to be a more open agency, more moderate agency, and really do away with a lot of procedures that are not required under the law that could make the system work a lot faster and, and better.
1: Gotcha. Finally, if our listeners wish to get in touch with you, what's the best way
2: to do so? They can find my bio on uh, my uh, website, visalaw.com, V-I-S-A-L-A-W.com. Uh, they can find me through visalaw.ai, which is our tech company. They can find me on Twitter at G. Siskind, probably other places as well.
1: <laughs> Great. Thank you again for joining us, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee, and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legalrebels.com, legaltalknetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn